From the MIT studios of the Teaching Systems Lab, this is Teach Lab, a podcast about the art and craft of teaching. I'm Justin Reich. Today in the studio, we're lucky to have Mel Ching. She's a lifelong educator and learner. She's passionate about play, curiosity, and the ways that we can use technology to amplify student voice. She's a maker enthusiast. She believes in intentionally designing environments in which learners are free to tinker and experiment and build stronger communities and richer connections. In her employed life, she is the director of engagement at what school could be after 23 years working in Hawaii in charter schools as teacher, technology facilitator, coach, and administrator. Mel, thank you for joining us on Teach Lab. Oh, thanks so much for having me, Justin. I appreciate it. Will you tell us a little bit about the organization, What School Could Be? Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, so What School Could Be is an educational nonprofit, and we're committed to doing a couple of different things. One is making sure that we um, connect educators with one another all across the world, and as well as providing uh, professional learning opportunities for them uh, that really helps with the innovative work that they're doing and helping them to center students um, in their classrooms. Well, and you all have been kind enough to have me on your podcast in the past, and we're going to have um, some educators in the What School Could Be Network um, do a session with us about my new book, Iterate, The Secret to Innovation in Schools. And you wrote what might be my favorite review of Iterate so far. I like this review so much. And I didn't, I, the thing that listeners need to know is I didn't ask Mel to write me a review. Mel and I were just corresponding back and forth and I'd sent her a link to the book and she was like, oh, I read the book or read most of the book or whatever it is. Um, and then she wrote, intuitively, we know that teachers are the driving force of change and administrators need to create the conditions for this to happen. But rarely is that articulated, much less given a roadmap. Um, when did it become intuitive to you that teachers are the driving force for change? You know, I, I think it just grew out of my experience as a teacher. I was really lucky enough to be a part of a school that valued teacher leadership. And so all of my experiences kind of centered around um, teachers being able to kind of choose the path that was best, uh, best fit their students. And I, I just I, I'm really grateful for that experience. What, what are some of the concrete things that that school did that made you know that teacher leadership was valued? Um, like if you wanted if there are there pieces of that that could transfer to other places? Um, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I guess when you think about um initiatives in schools, they enter from a lot of different avenues, right? So um, they can come from administrators, sometimes from parents and families. Um, many times they're like district mandated. Mm -hmm. And ideally, they come from the teachers themselves, right? So I guess whatever that case is, teachers really are the point of implementation there. And once things are adopted, school leaders have, um, I, I guess, one of three things can happen from teachers. Teachers either buy into something, they're engaged with something, or they're empowered uh, to do these things. And so, you know, to me, buy-in feels very much like uh, compliance. You know, like we all agree that it's a good thing, but it's not high on our priority list. So you might have the anchor chart or the visual up on the wall, but um, really You're not really pointing it. to it. It's not really part right, of the lesson. Exactly. You know, totally. the principal will see it in an observation, <laughs> but like we didn't really, it's not really, you know, at yeah. the heart of what we're doing. It's just kind of, it's kind of there, right? And then uh, like the second part would be the engagement. So you have like the enthusiasm going on and people will take time to dig a little deeper to implement it well. 
Um, and it's going to happen in the classrooms, whether there are walkthroughs or observations going on. Right. So like just what you just mentioned. Um, but I think the, the one that we all kind of strive for is empowerment. And that's when people really begin to make it their own. So there's like conversations flowing around it. There's questioning going, going on. And I think that's where the initiative kind of ends and the magic of teaching can, can start to happen. So, you know, if you want an initiative to kind of take root and to have longevity, then, um, you know, it really needs to kind of outlive the tenure of the, the school leader. Because otherwise, you know, as soon as the person who initiated it leaves the school or changes position, then things just kind of go back to square one. Um, so kind of circling back to your, your question about uh, was there, you know, a concrete thing that happened? Um, I would say that uh, way back, our school was looking for a brand new math curriculum and teachers were invited to do the research and, and make the decisions on that. So it wasn't just um, here are some suggested programs, give us your feedback and the principal will decide. We actually got handed that, that whole process which was, was great. It was, it was really incredible. Um, you know, we formed a committee. Uh, we talked about our philosophy of learning. Um, we discussed best practices. We kind of uh, thought about the habits and dispositions that we wanted our students to leave our school with. Um, and we also talked about logistical things as well, like how are our teachers going to get the training and the materials that we needed. So the committee built that entire process um, selected a few programs um, that we thought kind of met those the, the litmus tests. Basically, got a chance to visit schools if that was available for us. Um, where they were already using that curriculum. Where they were already using that, yeah. Um, and then we presented findings to the rest of the faculty. And from there, we kind of made this whole decision. And what we ended up with was a, a program that you know included the hands-on learning that we believed in. Um, it included mathematical discourse. Um, it recognized different solution paths. So, you know, this was way back in 2005. I might be dating myself a little bit there. But up until I left the school in 2022, it was still um, being used, albeit, you know, in a more updated version. Because teachers had been involved from the beginning in the decision making yes. and they made decisions that worked for their students and their communities or backed by research, backed by other good practices. Um, and I love that phrase that you used of where the initiative ends and where the magic begins. Um, that seems like a great transition point for lots of teacher leaders and lots of school leaders to be aiming for, um, you know, that things start as uh, bullet points on an agenda um, or the title of a committee. But that's really the start, you know, where, where the, the key transition point is where, in a sense, where it stops being innovation, when it, stop, it starts being, yes. nope, this is just like the way we do things now. Um, how did, I mean, this is a while ago, but how did that school compensate you for your time? That sounds like a lot of work that you were doing as a teacher. Were you doing it? Was there a class release? Were there, um, how, did, how did they make it feel kind of, what are all the ways they, they incentivized and compensated you to be able to want to do that? Yeah, so um, one of the ways that I want to mention, you actually pointed out in your book, so there was like this summer program that we did. So we came in during the summer, and uh, again, it was open to teachers who were interested that had the time and the bandwidth to do it, and, and we were compensated fairly for that time. Um, so it was outside of our regular pay scale. Um, that was one way we did it. Um, the school also just had this really great um, program, it was called like articulation time, basically. And so our students would go out to specialists 
um, to do music, Hawaiiana, pi'i, music, uh, art, that kind of thing. And then teachers were given that time to sit in their grade levels and, you know, discuss kids' work, um, help plan curriculum. Uh, I mean, it was it was a lot of time that was given during the school day, so we wouldn't have to spend. And that was outside of planning time as well, I might add. So, um, you know, it was they really valued, I've, I think, teacher time um, and expertise. And that was a couple of the ways that they showed it. So Mel, what did you find in Iterate that was a roadmap? What did you find that were way markers, that were routes to get somewhere? What made, what made you describe the book as a roadmap? Um, so I think one of the things that I really liked was the analogy that you made of the um, playground merry-go-round in schools. Just that like the instructional leadership team, those they're the spinners of, uh, of the cycle of experiment and, and peer learning. And so the beauty of that analogy is that it recognizes that everyone who's going to be doing the work actually needs different kinds of support. And I think many times, and as, as an administrator, you think, okay, time, so I'm going to give a faculty meeting, um, or money, I need to buy all the supplemental resources that go along with this, or teachers need um, materials that they'll use in the classroom for methods of inquiry, that kind of thing. Um, but I think it kind of frees up people to realize that it doesn't have to be a one size fit all. So you can actually have conversations with your teachers and say, hey, what do you need here? You know, are you do you need more time? Is there one resource that you need specifically? And it doesn't have to be school wide. So it's really helping each person where they're at and then moving them forward. Um, so that's one of the things that I found really, really helpful. Um, and I think the other thing we talked about was, again, the, the summer innovation, which um, addresses time and money. Um, I think addressing things from sort of the pain point sort of view. So you're looking at one small challenge, one thing you need to change. So we're not asking you to change like your entire cl classroom practice, but try this one thing that's going to make the teaching and learning experience that much better. Um, it, it's like these small wins, right? So, um, small steps to big change. That's, that's kind of what school could be, uh, uh motto too. So small steps to big change. I love it. Now, yeah. an interesting thing about your career, Mel, is that you've sort of been on both parts of the merry-go-round that you spent a bunch of time as a teacher, as an IT leader, sort of on the merry-go-round spinning around with the kids. And then you've also stepped out of that role and taken on more administrative roles and been one of the people who's trying to create the conditions for the merry-go-round to spin fast and fun. Um, what did you learn in that transition? How did you think differently about leadership and teacher leadership as you took on more of those responsibilities after a long time in the classroom? Yeah, I think um, the, a really big lesson that I learned is that the experiences of teachers in the classroom when I was an administrator are, were very different than the ones that I was experiencing. And part of it had to do with the timing because it happened you know, around COVID. Um, but the other thing is that the, the education sphere just changes so quickly. So something that I experienced you know, even a year, two, three years ago, just didn't necessarily have the same weight that it would with teachers in the classroom at the present time. So um, it was really important for me to put aside any preconceived notions I had and really sit and listen to the challenges that they were facing, the things that they needed, um, and not make any kind of decisions on my own. That's terrific. Mel, one of the things that we know about your background, because you've been around the block uh, more than once in a role of facilitating technology, 
is that you've had a couple of these cycles of bringing in something new, kind of retiring it, bringing in something new on top of it. You have facilitated spaces that have gone from computer labs to maker spaces to learning commons. Can you tell us a little bit about what themes from the book Iterate resonate from you when you think about those initiatives that you've led and re-led over a, a long period of your career? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think it's really about that, um, you know, teachers taking the lead in the whole initiative. I and mean, that that really resonated with me. And I've seen it happen time and time again. Um, and, you know, you mentioned uh, the the uh, computer lab and moving into the, the makerspace and then the learning commons. And that was over a period of like six years and the Learning Commons is still in place now, even though I'm no longer at that school. So. What's, what's, tell us what the Learning Commons is. Oh, sure. So um, I had been in the classroom for uh, a number of years, over 14 years, and um, the position of a technology coordinator had opened up. There hadn't been anyone in that role for about five years or so um, because of budget cuts and so forth. Uh, so when I went into the space that was going to be mine, it was a very traditional computer lab. You, you know what that looks right? Like the long tables you have. Um, there's your an inner row. Computers. There's an outer row. Sometimes <laughs> they're all lined up. There's not like, because there's so exactly. many machines in the room, there's not like really a place for the teacher to stand or there's like one wall exactly. with a whiteboard. It was probably like an old digital whiteboard <laughs> that people never actually use as a digital whiteboard. I can, readers can't see you sort of laughing as I'm saying this, but it seems like having never discussed this before with you, I have intuitive some of the key Never. characteristics of this space. You completely described what it looked like. I mean, that was that was exactly it. And the you know the school I was at was really grounded in experiential learning and social constructivism. So um, you're not only building your knowledge uh, through hands-on learning, but you're doing it in the company of others. So having that set up, you know, kids couldn't really talk to one another, learn from each other, collaborate, and so forth. And so when we looked at that space, we realized that. It didn't actually reflect what we wanted for kids, what we knew was best for kids, um, and it definitely didn't support that. So um, we did our first iteration of that space. Um, we changed out the tables, so we ended up with trapezoids instead and kind of arranged it in groups and so forth. Um, we eventually were able to replace all the desktop computers with laptops so the kids could move around, talk with different groups. Um, we got a large screen TV with an Apple TV so that uh, teachers were no longer tethered and they could move around among their students. Um, and the change was immediate. Like you could see the kids beginning to talk to one another and so forth. But um, as you know, and as you've written about in your book, that's that's not where the work stops, right? There's always more research to be done and so forth. Um, and in that research, we came across this TED talk by Will Richardson. And the gist of that talk was basically, we don't need to be doing the same old things uh, better. We actually need different. Right. So fundamentally, when we looked at the computer lab, it was it was the same. You know, it we hadn't changed it completely in, in any. Um, you made you made some good improvements. You'd open up the space. You'd, you'd have to be somewhat more aligned with the goals that you had before. But you had this idea that, were, that there were further steps that you could take, that there is a bigger break with the past that you could try to make here that would align a little better with your values. 
Exactly. And so we, we needed to sit down and, and have a talk with uh, the teachers, with administration. And, and it was a, it was a good talk. I think it was very productive. And what kind of came out of that is that kids were still consuming basically. And we wanted them to see themselves as creators. So that required, again, another change in the space. Um, we put up more whiteboards, spaces for brainstorming with the kids. Um, we ended up using a mix of tools, both high-tech and low-tech. Um, we were lucky enough to get uh, furniture that was movable, flexible, so we could stack things. The furniture was on wheels. We could totally reconfigure the room. Um, and we even changed the way. So I, I think this was actually one of the best changes. And it was such a small one is we changed uh, the way that the kids connected to the Apple TV. So even though uh, it wasn't the teacher at the front of the room anymore, they could still move around. Really, the teacher was still controlling it because it was on the, the teacher Wi-Fi, basically. So we swapped that up so that it was the kids Wi-Fi and they could connect from anywhere in the room, from any device and that, that was really awesome because it gave them control of what they were doing. The, so. the, that whiteboard or that projection screen is such a central part of our shared experience in the classroom. And you were able to say, let's, ta let's take the step of not giving this just to the teachers, but really making yeah. sure that all the students can very easily um, get your space up there. It's funny you describing that. I had uh, um, one of my favorite conversations from the early part of the pandemic was with an art teacher um, at a college who uh, had to teach hybrid very early on. And she actually really loved having all of her students who were both in the classroom and at home logged in on Zoom because for the first time it was trivial for her to have any student screen be shared with everybody else in the room um, so that they could celebrate what they were doing or she could like demonstrate something on their machine that everybody could see really quickly. Um, Another thing I love about your story, one of the um, researchers who I cite in Iterate is a woman at Harvard named Ebony Bridwell Mitchell, um, who has one of my favorite descriptions of innovations in school, which is this idea that it sort of has to proceed in kind of a wave formation, um, that two of the things that make good schools are innovation, creativity, experimentation, and coherence and steadiness and a set of a, a sense among students, faculty, like we kind of know what to expect when we go together. And those things are really intention. Um, coherence is in some ways the opposite of experimentation. Coherence is doing things that we expect. Experiments are doing things that we don't know. And so what you're describing in this space is like, all right, we cohered for a little while around computer labs, and then we decided it was time to move. And we moved into a different kind of space, and we did that for a little while, and we got steady and we got comfortable there, and the innovations there just became our sustainable practice, and then it was time to change again. Um, and then we stretched out more of those innovations. You know, and if you were making this change, every year, you drive yourself crazy. Um, you know, yes. I mean, you, pro you probably want to be making one of these kinds of changes somewhere in your space and your curriculum and your relationship with students, you know, somewhere we're always trying to do something new, but there have to be parts of our system that can enjoy that period of coherence um, and cohesion so we can pull things together. So I, I love how your exactly. story illustrates that kind of waves of innovation that I think characterize institutions that are that are both trying to be steady places for students to learn and teachers to work and dynamic places that are always growing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, I think, you know, one of the things that we we really thought about is that 
um, for kids, oftentimes we um, we're so used to telling them what to do that they don't have the time and space to figure out what they can do. And so this whole thing was like the ultimate experiment in wait time uh, for the kids. I mean, and for us, I you know really. Um, so it, it was just a really fun process. It was full of joy. Um, I think one of the other things that was really important about it is not only did we get teacher feedback, but we got student feedback as well. So um, really paying close attention to um, the things that they were interested in, that they were passionate about, that they wanted to, to learn and further explore. That's how we designed um, parts of the space. Were there moments in this journey where you hit dead ends or you um, ran into frustrated colleagues or frustrated students or had to deal with conflict or loss? Because as much as it, like the overall experience hopefully is really joyful, um, but one of the things that I try to get real about with people in Iterate is like the whole thing is not joy. <laughs> like when you ask people to change, like change hurts. We experience change as law to get cool new things. You usually have to give up things. And a lot of times you can give, give up crappy stuff, but actually sometimes you have to give up stuff that was pretty good and worked before, but isn't going to work um, in the new thing or you just have to make space for it. I don't know. So in this journey, can you think of particular moments where you were like, oof, this was tough and we worked through it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, you know, one of the things that really um, it sort of encapsulated, I guess, our move from the makerspace to the learning commons um, was the idea that we wanted to operationalize our vision. So it was things like um, being socially responsible, being a creative problem solver. So all of those kind of durable skills that aren't easily measured. And so um, part of that was uh having teachers come in and while, you know, I was teaching, they would be given the opportunity to do a lot of kid watching. Um, so that gave them time and space to do that. But as we all know that there are a lot of competing um, priorities. And so, you know, it, I don't want to blame anyone here, but, uh, you know, I think teachers would come in and they would have reports to write. They would have, um, papers to grade and that sort of thing. So instead of being able to really immerse themselves in the kid watching, it instead became um, an additional work time or a prep time. And, you know, by no means can you fault them for doing that. They're just trying to find space in the day that they can, you know, take care of all of the, the myriad of responsibilities that teachers have. So that was an issue, um, I think, for us. But you, but you kind of need them to be present. That's part of the goal of this whole thing is to say, yeah. Yeah, this is a little hard because as teachers, you're used to optimizing every moment of your time. But I really need you to just be present here. Um, yes. And you probably had to have some tough conversations with your colleagues about what the expectations were and why it was important to try to get them to preserve this time. Yeah, there, there were. And actually, you, you know, that's another thing I want to bring up about um, the leaders that were in the school at the time. So um, over that period of six years where we made this transition, there were actually uh, two, two heads of school there and they were very different in terms of their leadership styles. But one of the things that was, it was a common thread that ran through um, was how much they trusted and valued their teachers. And so they made it very apparent that we could make the decisions. You know, they cleared spaces for us so that we could do um, and try new things. And I never felt like a mistake that we made or uh, a challenge to anything was 
you know, was going to be like a mark against me, I guess. They were super supportive and um, really they made that journey incredibly joyful. You know, like I, like you were saying that there are, um, you know, many challenges along the way. It's not perfect, but um, a leader in that position can really uh, make or break that whole experience. And, and they were both amazing. And I'm super grateful to them for their leadership. Yeah. And then somehow balancing that idea that as essential as leaders are for making the space for people to be courageous, to be able to share with each other, to feel like they're safe and they have backup. Like also those two people can't do all the innovation work. Like the only, you know, they don't have time to go into the PE classrooms and the art classrooms and the elementary classrooms and the computer lab to make all the changes that we want to see as schools grow. Like the only people who have the time to do that are teachers, um, which is why teacher leadership is just so essential and why teacher leadership and the kind of, you know, school leadership that you're describing, it's so important to have them be hand in hand. Um, Mm -hmm. Now, another big part of teacher leadership is peer learning. You know, if you interview teachers and you ask them who has the most influence over your practice, if you ask them who has the most influence over their curriculum, they'll give you a bunch of answers. They'll talk about the state or their principal or district. But you ask them who has the most influence over their practice. The number one answer is other teachers. Um, Teachers practice is in powerful ways guided by what they see working um, with their peers. Um, in the school that you were working at for a long, I want to get to where what school could be in a minute, but in the school that you were working at for a long time, did you have practices around peer learning that were particularly effective for you to get these good ideas and good experiments sharing around? You talked about some of the articulation time, other, other things like that. Articulation time was really important. I think um, the use of faculty meeting time, well, you know, just like any other school, right? A lot of it was logistical kind of things. Um, I think all of our leaders made uh, a concerted effort to give us that time to to have peer talk as well. Um, And so one of the ways that we use that, you know, I just mentioned that sometimes teachers would uh, come in and correct their papers and so forth. But we did have some others who really... um, made the most of that opportunity to do some kid watching. And so they were able to share with their peers why it was valuable. So it wasn't coming from me who was running the space, even though I was a teacher at the time too. It wasn't coming from the administrators, but it was coming from a classroom teacher um, who had found that time that was made for them very valuable for that particular practice. Um, So that I think changed a lot of the minds of of certain teachers who might have used it for for other purposes. That reminds me a ton of one of my favorite stories that I have with a colleague named Tom DeCord. Um, And we did a lot of work in technology consulting. Um, And over over time, we decided there was a particular kind of person who worked really well to be that person who stands up in front of their peers and say, hey, this is a pretty good thing. Um, And we called that person Bob um, because there was a Catholic school that we were working with in Providence um, and we did a workshop with them. And then we came back a couple months later and and we said, we want somebody to help us. We want one of your teachers to help us kick off this next session talking about stuff that they've been doing that they're excited about. And, you know, the, the folks we were connecting with was like, oh, we got this 23 year old who's done this amazing thing and this 24 year old. And we're like, yeah, that might work. But actually, who is the person who's having the most success that you least expected? And they were like, oh, that's Bob. Um, Bob is like very close to the end of his tenure. He has been at this school for a long, long time and could have retired a long 
long time ago. Um, and he's not doing the most cutting edge project. He's not doing the most innovative project, but he's doing something pretty cool. That's a big stretch for him and everyone loves him. Um, and so we had Bob kind of do the initial presentation um, at this thing. And it was one of those moments where you're looking around this, this uh, room full of Catholic school faculty who are like, okay, if Bob can do this, we can give it a shot. So we had, we had the, the, the calling card that we have at, after that was find your Bobs, um, find the person in the community who, you know, is in a kind of special position to, to do some of that really important peer teaching. What is the, what does the peer teaching and peer learning look like at what school could be? If people wanted to get more involved in that, what are some good entry points? Oh, thank you so much for giving me that that opportunity. We have uh, a, a couple of different series that we just started out uh, last season, actually. And one is called um, Elevating Teacher Voice. So we have teachers come on, and these are teachers who have written blogs or writing pieces or reflections. And they'll share, they'll read their blog aloud. So people haven't read it in advance or anything. We just all come together. There's no homework. You can just show There's up. There's no homework. No homework. You just show up and um, enjoy the conversation and, and be in fellowship with your fellow community members. Um, so it's, it's really awesome because um, not only does that teacher who's reading their blog get, you know, a little more recognition for the, the work that they've done, the thought that they put into it. Um, there's some feedback that goes on there, um, but really everyone gets to learn from each other. So I, I absolutely love that series that, uh, that we're doing. Um, and then we have another series that's not exactly a, a peer learning series, but it's um, called Ion Student Protagonism. So the students are actually the center of that work. They'll come on and present um, their projects or um, their things that they're working on that they're totally interested in and teachers will learn from the students. So I think that's also a, another powerful um, series that we're doing there. That's great. And if people want to learn more, where should they go online to look at that? They should go to uh, community.whatschoolcouldbe.org. Really fun. And it's totally free. Join, join our community, please. We'd love to see you there. It's all free. There's some cool stuff to do. There's a podcast. There's some cool media that you produce. And it's all about teachers being in conversation to, with other teachers. That's great. Yeah. Mel, are there any other parts of Iterate the Book that, that you want to reflect on? Anything else in there that, that as you've been thinking back, you've said, oh, man, this is something that uh, I really want to amplify or reminds me of something from your teaching experience or anything like that? Um, I, I just maybe want to uh, double back on the, the students being a part of that design. I know that's something that you um, talked about quite a bit in the book, actually. And um, that's something that I've seen, again, happen both in the What School Could Be community as being very powerful. Um, it happened at the previous school that I was working in. Um, we had an entire PD day pretty much run by students. So they ran all the workshops and taught the teachers um, new things about technology and the, the makerspace and the learning commons. So um, those are really powerful practices. And if students are the ones that are being impacted the most, then they um, very much should have a voice um, and agency in the decisions being made. You know, and there's so much which is so fun about that. I mean, teachers get into this work because they really love being with young people. Um, and so having young people run the show for a little bit is fun. Um, an amazing thing about young people is that if you ask them seriously for their best work and their most important ideas, they will give you amazing things. And so I'm sure the workshops that were run by these students were exceptionally well-planned and very well facilitated and carefully thought out and oh imperfect gosh, Justin, like all of made, our things are. 
Hmm? They made lesson plans. They yep. actually made lesson plans. They made for lesson workshops. plans. It was so funny. They yeah. have handouts. They've got the teachers making stuff and sharing with each <laughs> other. Um, you know, and, and I think I mean I think there are lots of places that we can do that. I think we can have students talk to us about what really works for them in relationship building. I think we can have students teach us about what's going on in their social lives, how youth culture is changing in ways that adults might not be tracking, but might be important to, uh, for us to just be aware of. But technology is, I think, a particularly special area um, where certainly as I'm, I mean, I've always experienced this, but kind of you know, raising my own daughters now who are, who are 10 and 13 and realizing the things that they can do that just you know, boggles my mind that they're capable of. Um, and uh, it's a special place, I think, to lift up um, youth voice and youth expertise. Um, and they're so eager to want their teachers to be better. You know, like we all, we all want our community to be growing and getting better. Um, and so that sounds like a really fun, I I've heard, I've heard a lot of student tech teams. I've heard a lot of, um, different kinds of support. I don't think I've ever heard of an entirely student led, uh, professional development day. <laughs> and it sounds like it was awesome. It was great. It was great. It's a good experience. Melching is the director of engagement at what school could be. She is a lifelong educator with a great background. She's also working with me to host for some what school could be educators, um, a kind of special session that we're going to be having later about iterate the book. And I'm really looking forward to connecting with what school could be educators there. Mel, thanks so much for joining us on Teach Lab. Oh, thanks so much for having me, Justin. It was a lot of fun. I'm Justin Reich. Thanks for listening to Teach Lab. Special thanks to our guest, Mel Cheng. To learn more about Mel's work with What School Could Be, check out our show notes. In the meantime, we've got some great resources for educators. My new book, Iterate, The Secret to Innovation in Schools, is out now. You can find a link to buy the book at your favorite bookseller at iteratebook.com, where you'll also find some downloadable resources for educators. And you can register for a free online course in October about innovation in schools. Just sign up at iteratebook.com. If you haven't already, check out our documentary film, We Have to Do Something Different, Teachers on the Journey Towards More Equitable Schools at somethingdifferentfilm.com. You can request a copy of the film or schedule a screening at your school. You'll find links to all this stuff in our show notes. And if you like what you hear on Teach Lab, be sure to leave us a rating or a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. This episode was produced by Amy Corrigan and Garrett Beasley. The sound was mixed by Garrett Beasley. Stay safe until next time. 